0: From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up Presents uh, with Danny Flecke in his weekly spot on this March the 7th, a Saturday, 2020. Good afternoon, Danny. Good
1: afternoon. How are you?
0: I am fine. Um, I imagine you would like to rant about baseball injuries and Mr. Judge and the fact that a September injury was just discovered yesterday.
1: Yeah. <laughs> again, we, we talked about it a bit last week. It just boggles my mind that this injury went so misdiagnosed for so long, and it's just, I don't know what's going on, you know, with that medical staff there, or, you know, what the initial prognosis was, and, you know, how they were treating it, but, you know, the, the guy had five months, whatever, four months off, and then as soon as he starts activity back up again, it flares up. So, clearly... Whatever regimen he was on in the offseason didn't really do much just to help out. Probably because he was probably not diagnosed with anything going into the offseason. Um, so, you know, it, you mentioned yesterday he did a bunch of tests and everything else like that, but they could only see that they did a CT scan, which they did this week. And, you know, why wasn't that done earlier? Uh, it just sounds like the, that, that medical staff there is a complete mess and shambles, or wasn't shambles. I don't know if they fixed it or not, but... Um, it sucks. You know, we could be looking at Judge missing two months, three months maybe, depending on, you know, what happens. If there's surgery involved, then you know, he's gonna be out for a while. Um, so you know, we might not see him until the beginning of June, mid June, you know, at the earliest.
0: And this is a team that's already gonna have no Severino. Um, Hicks is out for the year. Paxton's a late guy to get into the rotation. This is a banged up team already. Stanton's uh, not going to be ready for opening day, um, and now you throw in Gary Sanchez, who today has a sore lower back from catching two straight days in spring training. Like, I get that as a manager, you're supposed to voice all these things, but like, um, isn't that just normal for a first time in a in a? Um, you know spring training first time you know getting your legs under you like i'm not sure why he had a voice that gary sanchez has a sore lower back
1: yeah i think you know that might have been a press conference or media session that should have been worded a little bit differently especially in regards to gary sanchez who we we already asked questions about his ability to to be a full-time catcher behind the plate and things you know The defensive side of that position, you know, I I simply would just come out and be like, yeah, it's a routine day off for him. You know, we want to see what other guys can can bring to the table. We're trying to build out our squad, you know, yada, yada, yada. You don't have to say that he's sore because he's caught two days in a row. You know, isn't that what he's supposed to be doing? (laughs) You
0: know, right? No, exactly. This is what he's supposed to be doing. And this is what, you know, someone like him is, is. Um, literally playing for the ability to play two straight days. We're talking to Danny Flecker here on Teeing It Up. Um, What's interesting to me about kind of the landscape of baseball is that we're going into this regular season. We've talked so much about the Astros. We've, you know, and and that ongoing storyline. But I thought, oops, I dropped a pen. It's got some traction early in the week. But there was this um, quote from A-Rod during an ESPN game that he faced the punishment for his sins and that the Astro players have not. And I bring it up not to talk about Houston, but just to talk about Um, (laughs) A-Rod. Because A-Rod loves to talk about A-Rod. For whatever reason or everybody likes to talk about A-Rod and J-Lo. It seems like A-Rod, the analyst, has suddenly realized that he made some transgressions earlier in his playing days. And uh, I don't know if that's genuine, or if that's reflection after becoming a dad, or if that's just whatever it takes to be a successful analyst. I have no idea. But I find A-Rod in this metamorphosis of A-Rod a fascinating subject.
1: Yeah, you know, just take what he said as face value, right? Not necessarily diving deeper into A. Rod as a person, you know. He came out and said, you know, what was a fact. He was tested. He got banned, and he dealt with that. And he he felt this, you know, he felt that punishment, you know, to his core. Now, you look at something, and you know, we talk about the NFL and the transgressions that that happened in there. How there's no equal system involved with, with punishments, whatever they may be, minor small, you know, it just seems that they hand out punishments based off of the, the time of the year stuff like that. Wouldn't this fall into that same sort of category, right? You had players that were part of a scheme that involved uh, a cheating or violation of the rulebook set forth by the league that they played. Wouldn't that in turn result in some sort of penalty or punishment uh, for the, the people involved in that? You would think so, right? And A-Rod is simply stating a fact, right, that these players were involved in something, just like he was, that went against the the rules that were set forth by Major League Baseball, and one guy was punished for it, and others weren't. And that's just, you know, as a a person like A-Rod, who dealt with that, that was punished for something, you look at things and you're like, it's it's not an equal playing field, right? It's not like I am, you know, these players are being... Uh, reprimanded for, for anything they're doing, and, you know, in turn, I think we spoke about this at, you know, in past podcasts, like that it only keeps the door open for stuff like this to continue to happen. You don't, you know, if you don't know what the punishment for something like this is, teams will continue to look for different ways to execute the plan in different manners until something really does come down where players, owners, uh teams are penalized to an amount that you know will prevent this from happening again so i can see where he's coming from now you know he's 100
0: right with what he's he's saying there yeah no and and totally and i think that the issue is um you know how do you differentiate between alex cora carlos Beltran, and a young guy who who just went along with the scheme but by vacating the t- t- title and taking it away and taking the rings away, you sure punish everybody, and that sends a message. Let's talk about a different kind of message, and that's what Christian Yelich did by staying with Milwaukee nine years, two hundred fifteen million dollars. Seems, on the surface, the guy who absolutely deserves that kind of money was part of the whole Marlins exodus, um, and clearly has found a home in Milwaukee, and has just become a superstar there. This to me is a really good deal for baseball and it's good to see somebody stay in that market because he could have gone somewhere and joined the super team and really further made uneven the the difference in MLB between the haves and the have nots.
1: Yeah, it's one of those situations where you like to see this better sort of thing happen. And it's nice to see a guy embrace, you know, the market that he's in, the team that he's on, and the management objectives that the team has, you know, moving forward for the the team and the city. So he's a good young player. You know, he's just entering the prime of his career. Milwaukee's been a pretty competitive team, too, the last couple years with him in the fray. Um, Craig Castle seems to really have that clubhouse in, in a good spot and you, you like to see this happen because like you said, it doesn't really ha- it doesn't happen that often. but I just goes to show you too you know what the market is for these types of players and I think he took a below market deal, right? If you want to compare him to somebody that's going to be hitting the market sooner getting a new contract, I talked about Mookie Betts, right? That guy's looking for 400 million dollars. You know, I could argue that over the last two years that Yellich has been just as productive, if not more productive, I agree. You know, in, role, in the role that he's playing. So it just goes to show you that you know, accurate market assessment, ability to identify the talent that you have, open and honest negotiations with those players will, will lead to fair market deals. And I think that's what we saw here. I don't think that Milwaukee went in there trying to cut him or anything else like that. You know, they maybe were very clear in their sentiment. Like, you know, Christian, like, we need you on this team. We really value what you bring to the table. We can offer you this, and if we offer you this, we can build a competitive team around you as well. Not just just throwing the kitchen sink at him, hoping that, you know, he's the end-all, be-all for them. So um, it's nice to see this kind of refreshing. I mean, don't get me wrong, he's getting paid big time. But I think Milwaukee was smart with their strategy, and I bet he was more receptive to their type of plan
0: than maybe some other players are when they get to this point in their career. Absolutely, and and also, I, I definitely think he gave him a hometown discount because if you look at Mookie, who wants 400, Trout, who got 430 over 12 years, um, nine years, 215, does seem like a I want to leave you room to, you know, go pursue people and not get luxury taxed into hell type deal, so... Um, because Milwaukee knows there is a gulf there between where they need to get to and where they are right now, and maybe this is the start of it by only signing for
1: 215. Yeah, and, and you can look like at this deal and sort of transcend it over sports in general too, right? Every team runs up against this at some point in time. If you hamstring your, your financial statements to, to one player or you try to build a competitive team with pieces that are, are undervalued perhaps by other teams or draft smart and hit the lottery that way. And I think this approach right here is an approach you'd love to see happen in all sports where you have a superstar or you have a, a phenomenal player understand the long-term objectives of that team and knowing that, yes, you can be part of something and still end up on top. Um, and, and, you know, that's what this deal looks like to me. It's a situation where... Milwaukee still has you know significant amount
0: of their payroll dedicated to him, but still allows him some flexibility to do things that can make them competitive. We're talking to Danny Flecky here on Teeing It Up. Danny, um, I am not going to ask you to play doctor or play medicine expert or, or contagion expert. I'm not one. You're not one. This is not a podcast about that. However, um, the, the the reports over the last 24 hours are that multiple American leagues, NBA and uh, specifically along with the NHL, have started discussing internally the prospect of potentially playing games in front of empty buildings with no fans, just press and just players, coaches, etc. cetera. Um, this is something that was happening in Italian soccer until they just decided to cancel everything. But it's something that has happened in international soccer due to security risks off and on for years. As somebody who follows international soccer, from a competition standpoint, from a sports standpoint, from a quality of play standpoint, what have you noticed in games in front of fans versus games not in front of anybody?
1: I mean, it's tough, right? You as the league have to be able to execute whatever plan you think is necessary. And this virus that is spreading across the world that has really hampered a lot of leagues and it's brought up discussions that you know many fans don't want to hear. I think from a quality perspective, what you see is it's not the same atmosphere, right? You're not going to get the home crowd. You know, there are certain games where that's necessary for some teams in order to build an advantage, that maybe they don't have against a team with better talent. So I think that's the biggest thing that happens. You know, as you as a team miss out on that opportunity to have the emotion. Uh, involved in certain games depending on the uh, opponent that you're facing or the situation of the game, etc. So I think that's where you see a big drop-off, right? You don't have that emotional support uh, to really get you going. So as a team, you have to execute better, be fundamentally sound, and understand that that emotional uh, adrenaline that you get or that emotional support that you get potentially from a home crowd isn't going to be there. I think that's the biggest thing you're going to see with, with these games that are in part of
0: the NCAA stadium. You know, what's interesting about this, um, when it comes to um, the Euro 2020s, um, and these qualifiers, and eventually the tournament, which starts June 12th, you'll see it on the, on the networks of ESPN, is that... They're being held in 12 cities and 12 countries. There's not just one host country. And this brings up an issue for, for a sport that is so rich in chance and fans and countries and pride. Imagine those matches happening in front of nobody where I would think, and you play soccer, not me, that, that the on-field communication gets better but it's gotta be weird to come out there and not have that natural adrenaline rush. And here you are in, in what, I, I would think it's, what, the third biggest for, for, uh, for these European-based uh, 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 players from these countries, probably the third biggest competition on the planet besides the uh, World Cup and Champions League?
1: Yeah, it's a big competition. And like you mentioned, this year it's, it's taking on a different format, which makes it even, more susceptible i think to these, these drops in quality because the way they're going to set things up is going to be geographically based right they're going to try to set up the group so that everything is geographically based so you're going to have more home matches for, for teams in their cities or you know in countries that are close to one another that way that you know travel is limited and, and there's not that fatigue factor in there but you know from the european standpoint too like these leagues that are, are having games postponed you suffer uh on the on the domestic side as well because you can't have the league go past a certain point right so there are players that are going to have obligations to their national team that can't be in season you know until the beginning of june and obviously the more the longer you stretch out a the season the less likely you are to, to to have, like, randomness, you know, as well. You know, you could run into injury problems or fitness problems, whatever it may be. So, you know, the European League, especially in Italy, are, are going to have, like, very tight schedules. You know, you increase, again, that that randomness that, that happens, um, you know, in a season because it's in this uh, truncated period. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. I know that um, Italian soccer is resuming back up this weekend. I, I think they saw that they were going to probably get some pressure from the European Confederation to, to bring some uh, bring a resolution to their season one way or the other, whether it was to continue playing or to cancel the season as a whole uh, for the remainder of it. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what, what types of matches we get, you know, the quality of those matches and the results of those matches.
0: Danny Flecke here on Teeing It Up. Let's, let's make a 180 to college basketball. As somebody who enjoys bracket pools and runs a bracket pool, when you have a season like this that's wide open that people think Kansas is the only team that has really separated themselves, that could see San Diego State and Dayton be on the one line. Those are not um, teams that you normally would expect to be on the one line, but that's the type of year it's been in college basketball. How the heck do you look at a bracket and fill it out and try to win? Um, Because literally, Dayton, a school that That, you know, maybe people know Obi Topman, but let's take San Diego State, better example. I don't know if anybody, even some college basketball fans, can name their whole starting lineup. And now you're trying to figure out a bracket pool. It could be for big money. There's gambling involved in this for some people. There's a lot to figure out in what is a wide open tournament where your bracket could get busted on day one. And you're still okay because everybody else's bracket gets busted on day one.
1: Yeah, and I think the biggest thing in the NCAA tournament is just, you know, matchups and looking at comparables. And I think in this type of situation where you, you can't find a clear-cut number one team, it's just looking at the matchups that happen. You know, I tend to side on the favor of experience and um, ability over, you know, one-shot wonder. So teams like San Diego State and, um, you know, Dayton, while they've been pretty impressive throughout the regular season. If they come up against a team like, you know, say Michigan State or, you know, Baylor, you know, teams that have had, you know, tough conference games, tough conference matchups, experience in the tournament on a yearly basis, um, ability to, you know, understand the situation that they're in, I think it's always better to err on that team. I'd rather have you know, a team like Kansas or Michigan State going farther than a team like San Diego State. But, you know, in these tournaments, you know, fortune favors the bold, right? Who's going to be that guy that has that foresight to envision a, a team like San Diego State or Dayton or, you know, Villanova going to the Final Four? So uh, it's going to be interesting to see just how the bracket lines up. You know, we still have another week before selection Sunday. A lot going to change between now and then. Um, you know, no number one team, I don't think any number one team is really locked up just yet, um, so we'll see. I think it's going to be a free-for-all, to be honest with you, and I think it really comes down to what teams throughout the year have really perfected a certain part of their game that can go up against that team that they're facing. So uh, it, I don't know if I'm going to have the faith in like a team like San Diego State to go very far, just depending on who they play, but it, it all depends on how the board uh, comes out.
0: Look at the AP Top 25 this week. Kansas, Gonzaga, Dayton, Baylor, San Diego State, Kentucky, Florida State, Seton Hall, Maryland, Louisville, Creighton. Creighton's ahead of Duke. Duke, um, uh, Oregon, Nova, BYU, Michigan State, Auburn, Iowa, Ohio State, Penn State, Houston, Virginia, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. That's like a football top 25 meets a basketball top 25 meets some teams that people forget are D1, and no offense to them. It's it's a really wide open field, and that's just the top 25.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's been an interesting year in general. You know, last week I was watching Creighton versus St. John's, right? Creighton had reeled off some big wins recently, um, went into St. John's, and... Couldn't shoot the three to save their life, and they lost that game to a team that is 500. So you know those are the types of situations we're going to be running into this year. Um, you know these teams are ever reliant on the three-point play, on the three-point shot. There's no post play anymore, so it's going to be what teams have that ability to stay hot, perform. You know the like their game to the best of their ability, and for most of these teams, of shooting threes. You know another team, Villanova. You know, last week they lost to Providence. They were like 3 of 31 from 3. And, and, you know, when you're a team, you have to eventually figure out, you know, if it's not working, what's our other option. So I think it's the team that has the most well-rounded game. And you look at a team like Kansas, Baylor, Florida State, you know, that can rebound, go inside, push the ball, uh, make the three, and, of course, shoot free throws. I think those are the teams you want to pinpoint and see if they're the ones that have favorable matchups and can get far in the tournament
0: speaking of just, just to that point they have a win against Nova they won the first matchup against St. John's putting up 94 they've beaten Seton Hall a uh, Seton Hall they beat Georgetown again um, they beat Butler and they have that game against St. John's where they lose by 20 and only put up 71 points can't make anything yeah. so
1: yeah I mean it, it's, it's a three point shot you know I've watched more and more basketball as the season has gone on and You know, you look at these teams that are racing the top 25, and and it's all about the shooting. Can they make those shots from three? Because when you're chucking up 31 three-pointers in a game, that's more than half of your shots. So you're going to hope that you're connecting on at least 35 to 40 percent of them. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a deep hole, and that's what happens to some of these teams. You know, they're not built to play the game inside out anymore. They're, They're built to play the game outside in. And when those shots aren't falling and you run into that cold streak and the other team is able to chip away or or stay ahead of you, you really find yourself at a disadvantage.
0: And that's the thing about Quinnipiac that I always hate, our our alma mater, is they play outside it. And when the shots don't go and don't fall, they don't have a secondary option. They have Marfo down low. But when Kelly or Williams or Rigoni or Falzone can't make a three, they're struggling, and that's why we lost the game this year, shooting 18% from the field and 15% from three. You're not going to win when you put up those stats. Um,
1: to no, say, they they, and they play a very similar style like Villanova does, obviously yeah. not with the quality um, that Villanova has. But, you know, Villanova's one of those teams, you know, I watch them a lot because they're on a lot, and it's Big East basketball, and I love Big East basketball. Uh, but, you know, last week, again, against Providence, they... They could not hit an outside shot, and Providence was able to to build the lead and able to sustain it because Villanova could have hit a shot. But then they go into Seton Hall on Wednesday, uh, have a more well-rounded game, and are able to beat a top-ten team on the road uh, because of that. So it's little things like that that I think that will play out throughout this tournament. And, again, you look at those teams like Kansas, Villanova, uh, Duke, Michigan State, that have been there, understand that, and hopefully those are the teams that, that you ride and, and they get far, but I, I still think anything's possible, like we see every single year in this tournament.
0: Danny Flecka, thank you, as always, for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling.
1: No well, Paul, man. Have a good
0: day. You got it, and thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up Presents.